Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. How are you? Good, good. So Rob's having me back. I guess he has to, but I guess that means it's not, it wasn't that bad last time. So let's get into it. Um, so I'm a student at Fuller. I'm almost done with my MDiv. Um, in my fifth, it's taken me five years to finish, but it's my last year, final stretch. Finally, it seemed like centuries. Um, it seems so long. It's, I really enjoy it sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> That's the way we feel about Rob, right? <laughs> I won't tell him you said that. I'm sure you will, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's recorded. Um, but I've done most of the hard stuff. In like seminary, really, the only technical classes you have to take are Hebrew and Greek, and then everything else is as hard as you really want to make it, you know, if you want to really dive into that stuff and, and, and read hard and all that stuff. But so now it's my last year, so I'm able to take some fun classes, right? Like classes I want to pick, which is subjective because you're in seminary and I don't know how fun classes can be. Depends on the type of person you are. Um, but I'm taking this class and this is the actual title. Check this out. It's called Immigration, Transnationalism, Identity, and Mission. How is that for a name, right? I really feel like the next 10 weeks, really the whole point of the class is like figuring out what does the title of this course mean, right? It's so long, complex, it's crazy. But the point of this class is on migration theory and immigration and a lot of stuff that's you know, pretty important for today's world, so I'm excited about that. But this week, I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Ruth. Uh, and you can't go wrong with some Ruth, right? You have this compassionate, beautiful, loving woman or women, and then you have, you can't forget about our handsome, sexy, strong Boaz, right? Like every Christian girl's like, where's my Boaz? Um, <laughs> at least that's what I hear that they say. Um, but this week I opened up uh, my first school book uh, to do reading, it was two weeks ago, and it's for my immigration class. And I also have this sermon I have to prepare for, and I'm like, you know, the worst feeling I think is when you sit down to write and it's just a blank piece of paper, like what am I gonna do? And so I have that in the back of my mind, and I open up my first reading for school, and it is on Ruth. I'm like, there's a God, right? <laughs> I knew it. And so I start reading, and it's, it's about Ruth and, and how Ruth is really an immigration story. It's all about immigration. I never really looked at it like that, so that was really interesting. And so I'm reading through this. I'm like, this is awesome. This is perfect. But my professor... She is a fantastic human being. She's been working in immigration reform for over 45 years. So she's not only a scholar on this material, but she's actually in the field making a difference every day um, in the lives of immigrants, asylum seekers, refugees. And she tells this story on the first day of class, how a few years ago she was in a bicycling accident. And she fell off and fractured or broke her wrist and she went to Kaiser to get it assessed. And they tell her because of her age, get this, because of her age, she's in her late 60s at the time, the doctor told her that they don't think it would be worth it to do the operation. Yeah. Talk about ageism. And, and she asked the doctor, so what, what does this mean for me? Right? What does this mean for the rest of my life? And the doctor responds, well, it'll heal a little, right? And you'll feel 
somewhat better, but essentially you are going to live in pain for the rest of your life. But the rest of your body is okay. And don't worry about it. We have pain medication that you can manage the pain with. And she responds, uh, no, that's completely unacceptable. You're doing the surgery. That's a crazy story, and it's true. But here's the thing. It wouldn't matter, right, if the rest of your body was well. If you lived in pain with just part of your body, it would change who you are for the rest of your life, right? It would slow you down. You would constantly be thinking about that one thing that hurt in your body. And I really believe that this is such a perfect symbol for what it looks like when part of the body of Christ is injured or ignored or rejected. This is what it's like when we treat our immigrants and our refugees and other brothers and sisters who are being oppressed like those others out there that don't deserve to be treated with dignity, love, and radical respect and grace, right? And it's not only them that is affected when we don't treat them as equals, but we are affected too. Because as we will see in the book of Ruth, who is an immigrant from maybe one of the most worst countries in the eyes of Israel, Ruth's faithfulness and compassion reveals that she was actually the blessing that they needed all along. The immigrant is the blessing here. So let's get into this story in Ruth chapter 1. Before we do, let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be with this group of people, um, my people, for the next year. And um, just to sit here in your presence and speak about your radical love and grace that makes no sense, that goes against conventional wisdom, but makes all the difference in the world when we truly live it out. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and open our hearts to your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this is Ruth 1, starting in verse 1. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion. They were Aphrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Malone and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband 
And then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two sons, there you would wait until, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law's Magabai, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. How's that for an evangelist? Go back to the other gods. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So this is a wild story, right? There's so much going on here. So much. So we're going to get into the context a little bit. But just in the first verse, we have layer upon layer of things that are actually going on behind the scenes. So it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Right? So the book of Ruth is the eighth book in the Old Testament. It goes Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. And Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. And just to give you a refresher on the book of Judges, it's essentially about people wanting, the people of Israel, wanting a leader to lead them. Then they get this leader, and because they think it's going to solve all of their problems, but it doesn't, usually violence then pursues and breaks out, which is followed by famine and more horror. And then finally, there's a time of peace, and then they call for another leader, and then the cycle continues over and over again. There's the cycle of peace, and then chaos, and then peace again. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, I feel like that's a really good symbol for how this world is, right? At least my very own life. It's usually some peace, some stability, and then it's crazy, and then there's peace again. And I love that, that these ancient stories speak so much into this human experience. I mean, this is written thousands of years ago, but we can still find ourselves in this ancient story. So I want to invite you to find yourself in this ancient story this morning. But there's more. So this story takes place in the time of Judges, and there's a man in Bethlehem. And there's a man and his wife and two sons from Bethlehem. And this severe famine breaks out. And this is ironic because in Hebrew, bet means house, and lechem means bread. So there is a famine. There is no bread in the house of bread. And this man and his family have to flee. So they flee to Moab. And this is interesting because the Moabites in past history 
have been one of the Israelites' most despised, hated enemies. In fact, the Moabites were known for committing child sacrifice to their gods. So there's nothing worse than a Moabite. So this man from Israel and his family flee to enemy territory as refugee, for refuge for help. And I don't know about you guys, again, but has anyone ever been in a, a place in their life where they had to do something like that? Like, you're so down, you're so out, you're out of options, and you have no other choice but to ask the last person you want to ask for help for help. I preached this in a rehab a couple weeks ago. I, I'm, I'm a pastor for a drug and alcoholic treatment center, and I, I, I used this text a couple weeks ago, and when I asked that question, everybody's hands went up, right? Because drug addicts, alcoholics, they definitely know what that's like, and I think we all do. But just imagine, you're down and you're out, and you have to run. You have to run to the enemy to seek help. So you humble yourself to get the help that you need. And then it says this. There's a man, uh, the, the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malone and Kilion. So, there's a lot of meaning in the Hebrew text when it comes to names. The storyteller wants to tell us something to foreshadow what's going on. Elimelech means, my God is king, which holds so much subversive political weight, right? My God is king, even though he has to flee to the enemy in order to get help and food. He has to flee to a land of foreign gods for their help, but still his name is my God is king. And then Naomi means pleasant, but then she changes that name to bitter later on. And get this, the names of the two sons, Malone and Kilion, means sick and ailing, which foreshadows what's going to happen to them in the future, the story. So this storyteller wants us to see these elements to get this total picture of what's actually going on here. And then it says they were... Aphrodites from Bethlehem. So what's an Aphrodite, right? Other than a really weird name. Well, an Aphrodite is actually, I looked it up, the original clan that was made in Israel. So the storyteller wants us to know that these guys are like legit Bethlehemians, right? They're like OGs. It, they, they, they are the real deal. They, they, and they, even they, had to move to this foreign, disgraceful territory. Right? It's, 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 it's like, like almost in like a couple generations, you know, and the U.S. falls to, faces total economic crisis and collapse, and a family like the Trumps, right, has to like flee to somewhere south of the border, right? That's what it would be like. Like they're like the real deal, and then they have to flee to somewhere where they would feel like, what, what, I really have to go there, Right? So to seek refugee, uh, refuge in Moab throughout history for Israel was both shameful and very, very dangerous for them. But they go, and they live there. And this is when things get worse for them. You know, I love when people really like paint the story of Ruth as like a fairy tale. Because, I don't know if you just read what we just write, like, that's not a fairy tale. 
Like, that's a horror story. That's miserable. It gets better. But this text we're going through today is usually used in weddings, right? The last part is used in weddings. But really, it's not a fairy tale. It's, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy, and then it gets better. So Naomi's husband dies, right? And leaves her alone in Moab with two sons. And they eventually marry these foreigners from Moab named Orpah and Ruth. And a side note here, there is a very famous lady whose name was Orpah, but they messed up on her birth certificate and spelt it Oprah, which has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. But I, thought, I think that's amazing. Because, um, yeah, Oprah's awesome. So um, then as their names predicted, Naomi's two sons die, leaving her alone with these two daughters-in-law in a foreign land. I mean, this is like a story of heartbreak, at least up until now. Just listen to the end of verse 5. Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. Sit in that. Imagine yourself in that position. That's drama. That's misery. And then it says in the next text, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. But Yahweh, their God, our God, is faithful to provide. And after all this anguish and famine and chaos is over, Naomi can finally leave Moab and go home. After all the disasters, she can finally return home. So both of her daughters lovingly pack up and follow her back to what to them now is a foreign land. Now they're the immigrants. And as they're walking, Naomi begins to plead with them to leave and to go back to Moab to go find a husband. And they're all in tears, crying. And Naomi says this, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So I think that's like some ancient comedy, right? Right there, right? She's like, are you serious? You expect me to find a husband at my age, get pregnant with boys, and then you're going to wait around for them to come to age? Come on. You're crazy. Go find a husband. Go start a life. But Ruth, Ruth refuses to leave her and clings to her as her sister leaves. But Naomi continues to plead to leave, 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 because she knows, Naomi knows that this is going to be a hard life for her in a foreign land, that she needs to worry about herself now, right? And Ruth replies this, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you 
stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And that's the wedding text, right? There is so much going on in this story. But what's it all about? What's this story really about? Well, what we see is this migration story of a growing family that is in crisis, right? And this woman who happens to be a Moabite, the worst of the worst when it comes to international affairs with Israel, decides to stay faithful and true to her mother-in-law even after she commands her to leave and go back home. It's all completely counterintuitive. What Ruth does goes against conventional wisdom, right? She should look out for herself. She should look out for number one. She should take care of herself. Who knows what's going to happen to her in this foreign land, right? She could be raped. She could end up a beggar. All those things could happen to her. But we see this character who should be depicted as shameful and unclean and disgraceful actually become the hero. The immigrant woman here, Ruth, takes this major risk. But this is what I love about the story. Notice this story is driven by, at least up until now, by all women, right? We have Naomi, we have Ruth, and we have her sister alone in the face of adversity in this horrible, torn-up world filled by selfish leaders who are causing complete chaos with war and destruction and selfishness. But there is this, like, sacred, feminine, counterintuitive spirit in Ruth that goes against that status. And it's this sacred, feminine compassion that changes the course of history. She should go home, but she faces the unknown and submits to what she believes is the right choice, even though every sign is telling her that she should go the other way. Have you ever felt that before? Right? Everything is saying, do it this way. You were made for this. Get that job. You were born into this family with this path laid out for you. But something in you is like, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I just feel like it's not right. I'm going to do that. It's that small voice within you. And this is what Ruth does. It's this radical display of compassion in a world that is caught up in selfishness and deceit. So she takes a risk and she submits to that process. And if you read on, she meets a man and is eventually provided for, and then they have a child, which is mentioned in the lineage of David. So the overarching theme in this passage is this. Ruth is a foreigner of the worst kind, but she is portrayed as this hero who displays what in the Hebrew is called chesed. And chesed is this radical compassion, this radical family loyalty, this ideal for hard work that eventually leads her into a place of blessing. In fact, Ruth is the blessing in this story. She changes the course of Israel's history with her act of love and compassion 
for Naomi. So, in America, we offer 5,000 work permits to unskilled workers a year. That is not a lot. Our brothers up north do way better than that. And my question is, why so little? Why so little? Because research has, has shown over and over again that immigration is associated with lower rates of violence and property crime. That immigrants actually are, are, are actually less likely than native-borns to commit serious crimes or be imprisoned. So they add like a level of moral directing to our country. Research has also indicated that we have more than enough jobs to fill for unskilled workers, and that in the end, they would actually benefit our economy. Hardening, the hardening of, of borders through new security practices has actually been proven to be the source of violence, not a response to it, according to Karen Gonzalez, who does research in this field. And my question is, what if we're keeping the roots out? What if we're limiting the blessing because we're so caught up in propaganda? But even if, even if none of that was true, even if it went against conventional wisdom, wouldn't caring for those in need be the most Christian thing at the end of the day? Right? So how can we, as Americans, be more like the immigrant woman that we call Ruth? How can we, as a church, be more like Ruth? In the face of challenges, can we begin to listen deeply to our hearts and then move towards faithfulness like Jesus? I mean, isn't Ruth like a perfect picture of Jesus, right? Because it didn't make sense, but God came anyways, right? We don't deserve it, but he descends from, from heaven. He empties himself, making himself a slave, and then dies even on a cross. Why? Because of love. Why? Because of compassion. Why? Because we need him. And there's tons of folks out there that need us, the body of Christ, too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your church, for communities like this who take seriously caring for those who need help. And I pray that you would give us even more compassion to move towards those who are in need. I thank you for the hope that is in you and the hope that is in you through the expression of the church, that you don't need us to do this work, but you like to do it with us, so you call us to it. And so, Father, as we step out of here in just a few moments. May you continue to speak to us, to move like Ruth, to move in Hased, to move in
that radical display of love and action in this world. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity to participate while you make all things new. We thank you that we get to enjoy that process as much as you do as well. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.